Hey, everyone. I'm here to talk to you about Truebill. Now, over the last month or so, I, for some reason, have decided to take my finances a little bit more seriously. So because of that, I've been wondering about the subscriptions that I have and kind of where I can reduce costs and things that I don't really need. And I found out through Truebill that there are some places that renew free trials without your consent. And do you know why free trials renew without your consent? It's a business scam out to get you. Don't let greedy corporations pocket your money. Download Truebill to take control of your subscriptions. Truebill is the new app that helps you identify and stop paying for subscriptions you don't need, want, or simply forgot about, like me. On average, people save up to $720 a year with Truebill. I'm actually up to $150 right now. Because companies make subscriptions hard to cancel, Truebill makes it incredibly simple. Just link your accounts and Truebill will cancel your unwanted subscriptions in one tap. And your Truebill concierge is there when you need them to cancel unwanted subscriptions, so you don't have to. I had subscriptions for magazines, beauty boxes, etc. that I forgot I completely had and I was wondering why I was still getting them. I know it sounds silly, but I'm incredibly busy, so I don't always go through my emails or look through things like that to find out what's happened. So I use Truebill and you should too. Truebill has over 2 million users and helped them save over $100 million. So don't fall for subscription scams. Start canceling today at Truebill.com slash TCFC. Go right now. Truebill.com slash TCFC. It could save you thousands a year. Truebill.com slash TCFC. So in this Spotify green room, we're actually talking about the Velisca Axe murder house and the unsolved mystery that surrounds it. We go through theories and we have a fun time talking in the chat about what may have happened. So I'm definitely curious to hear what you think about it. Feel free to join me on Spotify green room every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central and be sure to tweet me your thoughts on this episode. I hope everyone enjoys it and you'll be hearing more from Spotify green room the rest of this month as the team is on break for the holidays. Thank you, and I hope that you guys have a safe and wonderful holiday, and we'll talk soon. Okay, on to the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome to True Crime Convos on Tuesday here on Spotify Green Room. I'm your host, Lainey, host of the True Crime Fan Club podcast, the Crimes of Passion podcast on Spotify, and the paranormal podcast called It's Haunted What Now? And so I wanted to talk tonight about the Velisca Axe Murder House. It was actually a house I visited in 2018 with a couple of friends of mine, and I wanted to share my experience there, but also give you some background into the crime and why, you know, some people think it's haunted and why the murders remain unsolved. So let's see, do we have any friends here from Iowa? It gets a little crazy every now and then I hear. So we're going to go ahead and get started because I know we only have an hour and there's a lot to cover with this particular murder. So here's a little bit of background on Velisca. So Villisca is a small town in southwest Iowa. In 1910, the population was about 2,039. And in 2010, the population was less than 1,300. Villisca was and still is a train town. Hey, Stephanie, welcome. So in the early 1900s, there were several dozen trains that would come through the town every day because Villisca was a major trading point. And in 1912, which is when the crime happened, there were over 50 retail stores in town. And that sounds pretty tiny when you think about it from our modern perspective, but it was really substantial for a small town back then. And I don't know about you guys. So I grew up in like a really well-populated town and it's always kind of been that way. My husband grew up in a town with like less than 1,200 people. And this was like in 2000 you know, like in 2000 or whatever, I think. And so it's strange to me to think of, you know, something that small in terms of a town, if you will. So the closest major city to Villisca is Omaha, Nebraska, which is about 70 miles away. 
So leading up to the murder. So on the evening of June 9th, 1912, there was a children's service at a local church. Um, a local family by the name of the Moors attended the event. So the Moore family consisted of Josiah. He was better known as Joe. Sarah, who coordinated the event, and their four children, Herman, Mary Catherine, Arthur, and Paul. So at the service, Mary Catherine asked if her friends, Ina and Lena Stillinger, could stay the night with them at their house. Now, the girls were actually supposed to spend the night with their grandmother, who lived in town after the service, because the Stillinger family lived really far away on the outskirts of town. So they were just going to stay with their grandma because it was just easier by then. Um, but according to Bill James, one of the Moore parents called the Stillinger household to get permission for the girls to stay over. And it wasn't actually the parents who gave the permission for the two girls, Ina and Lena, to stay over. It was actually one of their older siblings. Um, so the girls took that as their sign, like, hey, we can spend the night with them. And so let's all walk home with the Moore family. Um, this detail, there's a detail that comes up often about the night of the murders, and it was how dark it was that night. The town did have working streetlights, but they had been switched off after a dispute about power prices. So when the group walked to the Moore home, the it was around 9.45 p.m., and it would have been extremely dark. Um, so when I went there, I went there in 2018 to see this house, right? Because in the true crime world, the Velisca Axe murder is synonymous with like unsolved crimes and also being a really heinous and upsetting type of crime, if you will. Um, and when I went there, I was so shocked because this house is literally like in the middle of the town square. Sorry. In the middle of the town square. So it was strange to me that, you know, being that inclusive and this murder happening, and I'll get into that in just a minute after I go through the more family background, but this murder happening there, I was so shocked that there were no screams, et cetera, or that, or that nobody heard this. Um, okay, so give you a little bit of a background on the Moore family. So Josiah Moore, better known as Joe, was 43 years old and a businessman, and he was originally from Hanover, Illinois. He was from a large family and had nine siblings. He married his wife, Sarah, on December 6, 1899, and they were all well-liked and well-known in town. He worked at the Jones store in Villisca until 1908 when he left to start up his own farm equipment store. Say hi in the chat, everyone. Say hello, hello, hello. I love it, how you guys are interacting. Um, but if you are familiar with the Villisca axe murder, then I for sure want to hear your thoughts in the chat. Um in regards to paranormal or just your thoughts in general, if you think about it. Um, yeah, I can't wait to see what you guys think about this as we go through it. So the farm equipment store for Joe was actually a really good thing for his family. Um, one of his biggest clients was John Deere, and it was a count that he actually took with him from the Jones store. Um, one of the first people to be called about the murders of the Moore family was actually the John Deere account. Can you believe that? That's kind of nuts. That's how um, like important that account was to the Moore family. So Joe's wife, Sarah, was a 39-year-old homemaker from Henderson, Illinois, and together they had four children. Herman was the oldest at 11 years old, and it's said that Joe and Herman spent a lot of time together and were super close. Then you had Mary Catherine, who was 10 years old. Arthur was seven, and Paul, the youngest, was only five years old. So as you recall, the Stillinger sisters, Ina and Lena, were also present in the home, and they were 8 and 12 years old, respectively. So on the 10th, the house is eerily quiet. And remember, this is a working house. So they had animals they had to attend to. There were chores that needed to be done. And when you wake up super early in the morning and your neighbors are outside working, you know, you you kind of get used to those schedules. Well, on June 10th, Mary Peckham, who was a neighbor, noticed that the Moore house was really still and very quiet. The animals hadn't been tended to, evident by the chickens still being in the coop. Mary had been doing her own chores since 5 a.m. 
and she would normally see the Moore family up and about doing theirs at the same time. But around 7 a.m., she was like, okay, this is weird. They're not coming out to tend to their animals, and it's really strange. So I'm going to go investigate. So that's what she does. She goes, knocks on the door, and, of course, receives no answer. Now, she tries to open the door but found it locked. Now, this wasn't unusual because Joe was known to lock his doors from the inside with his key. However, there was no key found in the lock once the door was opened. So Mary decided to help her neighbors out. And she's like, I'm going to go take care of the chickens. And I'm going to call Joe's brother, Ross, because I know he has a key. And I want him to, you know, just check on the family, make sure everybody's okay. It's very strange. So while Mary's waiting for Ross to come, Ed Selly, who's one of Joe's employees, arrived to take care of the bigger livestock. Um, the Moors had horses. And there's a book about this case called The Man from the Train that really goes into theories um, and even names a suspect. So in that book, when we read it, they mentioned that they had, had li- larger livestock. So like they had cows, horses, etc. So After feeding the animals, Ed joins Mary and they wait for Ross. So Ross then arrives and he walks around the house and tries to see inside the lower story bedroom window, but the window was covered from the inside and he really couldn't see anything. And when I, when I tell you guys, like, this is a very small house, it is insanely tiny, like, I guess maybe for the air, it was great and big for that family, but um, walking in there, everything was very, the, you know, the ceilings were very low. A lot of the hallways were narrow. And maybe that was for the time frame when the house um, was built in the, you know, 1800s, 1900s. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's insanely small. So, you know, the walk around the house didn't take very long. So during this, Ross is knocking, shouting, and he lets himself in using the key that he had. So when you walk in front of the door of the house, as soon as you walk in, there is a sitting room to your left. Um, The parlor bedroom where Mary usually slept um, is directly off the sitting room. So as soon as you walk in, you go to your left, there's this big sitting room, which is fairly nice and still um, in the same, um, it looks the same basically as from when the murders happened. There are just a few little knickknacks that the caretakers of the house added, um, but they try to keep with the the time frame of when the murders occurred. Um, so that night, the Stillinger girls uh, slept in that room, and Mary slept in the upstairs bedroom with her brothers. So Ross walks over to the parlor bedroom, and he opens the door, and he saw Ida and Lena in bed, and then the sheets completely stained with blood. So he retreated to the porch immediately. And he tells Mary, hey, call Hank Horton. And Hank is a local sheriff. You know, he's completely shocked by what he's seen. And so Hank ends up arriving to the scene. And then the, Dr. Jack, I'm sorry, Dr. J. Clark Cooper, Dr. Huff, and the minister from the church, Mr. Ewing, all arrive at the house too. So I guess word got around that this was, you know, something was going on at the Moore house and people needed to like hurry up and get there. So they all enter the house together. And they discovered every single person in the house still in their beds, but they had been bludgeoned to death. Now, the attacks were said to be so violent that the men couldn't tell who they were looking at. And I don't know if that gives you the same vibes or is reminiscent of the Lizzie Borden murders, because when you think about when her father was murdered, they said the same thing, that he was unrecognizable, because remember... The killer, if you believe it's Lizzie, took the axe straight to his face and basically disfigured him beyond belief to where nobody could tell that that was him if they didn't know like his clothes, etc. So Ina and Lena, as I mentioned earlier, were found first. They were in bed where they slept. Ina was sleeping next to the wall and Lena was on the right side of the bed with a gray coat over her head. Now, Lena's nightgown was pulled up and she wasn't wearing any undergarments. A wound on her arm suggested that she may have woken up during the the attack and tried to fight back. Now, Joe and Sarah's bedroom was at the top of the stairs, and they were found next. 
So as you go into the house, like I mentioned, parlor on the left, another bedroom on the right, and then there's this kind of little kitchen area. And then if you round the corner just a tad, there's stairs that are kind of built into the wall, if that makes sense. They're very, very narrow stairs. But you walk up those stairs and it comes to this landing and it's a bedroom. And then there's other actual carved out bedrooms that have their own door, et cetera. But this is kind of like how I would think of as a loft space in a modern home. Um, so when you walk up there, they had their queen bed or full-size bed right at the top of the stairs. So Joe was found on his left, was found on the left side of the bed on his back with his left hand on his chest and Sarah was lying beside him. Now, I was taking live video this whole time when I did the um, tour of the house and I was creeped out because directly off the parents' bedroom, there's like this attic crawl space and then a door to the children's room. And the attic crawl space, I don't care like what era or century you're in, those freak me out. And so, of course, because you have the caretakers taking care of the house and kind of, you know, they're they're obviously doing ghost tours. And so I'm assuming trying to play up that, you know, whole spookiness vibe to it. So when you look into the um, little crawl space area, there's little kids toys like balls and toy cars and little teddy bears and like small chair, just like sitting by the attic. It's so creepy sitting by like the attic window. Um, and then you go into the children's room and they have, I think three, two bit, two beds and then a crib. So to the left is the baby's crib and then a little full-size bed. And then on your right, another full-size bed. So it was, it was a cramped space, right? But nobody thought that they would find the children deceased and they did. So once they walked into the room, all four more children were found deceased in their beds too, bludgeoned or axed to death, if you will. So so far, you guys, tell me what you're thinking of, about the crime and everything. Are you familiar with it? Yes or no? Let me know. Welcome, everyone. But yeah, I'm I'm very like, I can't tell you. I would like I said, I was very surprised by the size of the house when I got there. And it just gives you very creepy vibes. I don't know if a lot of people are into that. Um, but you know, or into maybe the paranormal side of this, but it is a very eerie feeling type of house when you walk into it. Maybe because you know the history of what happened, but it's just a lot. Now, when I went there, there were, um, yeah. So Lauren says, not familiar with the crime, at least not the details of it. I've just heard the name of the house a ton of times. And Morgan says, I live in Iowa and it's something that's talked about in school. You can actually rent the house for a night's sleepover. Yes. And I'll talk about that. So when we were doing the guided tour with the, um, with the um, man that's there. I forgot his name, but he's actually really um, popular in that area. Um, he was telling us that just, I don't remember, again, this is 2018, so my memory is a little faded from there. But when we walked in and he's, you know, giving us the history of the house and the murders and what happened, and then, of course, like ghosts, et cetera, he was telling us that, yes, of course, you can spend the night and, you know, they'll do like ghost hauntings. And remember, this is a house that doesn't have like actual electricity. Like they're using extension cords and stuff to power, you know, things on over there. But it's pretty much staying as it was in 1912. So, um, yeah, you can definitely rent the house. So there was this group of people that were there that were doing like a ghost like a paranormal haunt, if you will, like trying to find ghosts. I forgot. I'm literally forgetting what the word is called. So somebody in the chat remind me. Um, and he was saying that, you know, a lot of people were skeptics at first who came in. Like there were a couple of people who were skeptics and they were believers after the end of this because one guy ended up stabbing himself in the chest when he was there and running outside, like screaming like crazy. And this was during 
yeah, he stabbed himself in the parlor room where we were standing. Um, and I think that that happened maybe like a year or two before we were there, or maybe even a few months before we came there. And I was like, what the actual hell? So the guy runs out to the front of the house and is like screaming and they're like, oh my God. And they ended up having to care flight him out of there um, because he just kind of lost his mind during the um, investigation. So it was really, really, really strange to hear that. And you're just like, okay, great. Keep that in mind. Definitely won't be spending the night there. Um, it was, it was really, really interesting. So yeah, you can definitely do that. And if you just go to um, theliskaiowa.com, you'll be able to see the um, house itself. And it'll also give you a history. Um, I will put it in the chat for you guys if you're curious like I am, always wanting to see things. Um, but yeah, if you if you just go there and if you happen to be in the area, it's to me, it's worth the tour. Um, just being able to talk to the tour guide and the investigator and hearing just kind of the crazy stories that come out of that. And they also have a wall where they have photos of people who've been scratched in the house and who have been, um, you know, poked and you'll see like the welts. It's pretty intense. So going into the investigation into the murder. So Dr. F.S. Williams, he enters the house soon after and confirms the findings of the first group of men. He commented that there was nothing out of place in the house. And he also said that there was no odor, no odor of anesthetic. So in Bill James's book, the one I mentioned, the man from the train, he suggests that this comment is in reference to similar crimes being committed where there was a smell of chloroform in the house, suggesting that the victims had been sedated prior to their deaths. Now, Dr. Williams also stated that none of the female victims showed any signs of sexual assault. But you also have to wonder, like, what was the purpose of, of leaving, you know, Lena's nightgown up, et cetera, because a lot of the bodies were posed and we're going to go into how the crime scene was. But yeah, so news obviously spreads quickly in a small town. And of course, during this time frame, I'm sure you guys have heard this plenty of times. Um, there's multiple people from the town that arrive and they want to see what's going on. Now, the Villisca police force was only just a couple of men who were not in any way prepared to deal with, you know, small and petty crimes um, and dealing with a mass murder. So the crime scene got out of control within hours and it's said that more than 100 people went through the Moore House before the Villisca National Guard arrived at noon. And to say that that compromised the crime scene is an understatement. And remember, during this time, it was really popular to go into crime scenes or go to where crimes happened and take things to either sell or to have as a commemorative item. So I've, I've heard of crime scenes, especially, you know, in the early 1900s, where people would go in and take bricks from the house or take, you know, a bloody handkerchief or, you know, something like a pie or something like that. Like literally there was an, an uneaten pie that somebody took and kept forever until it literally rotted. Um, you know, it's, it's just kind of like macabre fascination with these things. And I think people were more forthcoming then about taking things than they are now. I don't know. What do you guys think? Let me know in the chat if you think that there's a difference. So basically any evidence that could have been collected was interfered with or maybe even removed. So that's part of the reason why this case remains unsolved because of how compromised the crime scene was and how inexperienced the police force was. Now, a makeshift morgue is set up at the fire station and the bodies were taken there at 2 a.m. on the 11th which means the bodies were still in the house as hundreds of nosy neighbors poured through the house. Can you imagine that? Imagine this was your family, you know, and you're hearing about this later and you realize that hundreds of spectators have walked through the house and seen a mur- like six murdered children and two murdered adults who not only were, you know, murdered, but were like brutally assaulted with an ax. Um, Another f- fact I'll share with you 
is that the the uh, paranormal investigator and tour guide that was there giving us the tour said that if you go up the stairs and you um, investigate in the bedrooms, if you take a take a moment, look up at the ceiling, and you'll be able to see the scratch marks from or the dents from the axe. Because remember, the ceiling was super super low. So I'm on a good day five one, right? Um, and it was pretty, pretty close to me. So the person who did this didn't have a lot of clearance with the axe. So every time the axe would go up before they would come back down to strike, it was hitting the wall. And in each of the bedrooms where there's a ceiling um, close to it, because um, remember in the parlor, it's not really, it, it's blocked off because of the second story. So the ceilings aren't super close, but in the parents' bedroom and in the kids' bedroom, you can actually see the uh, notches from the axe. And that is really kind of surreal to see, you know, because you realize you're standing in a place where a whole family and two innocent kids were, or, you know, two kids who aren't a part of the family um, were murdered. And you're seeing these marks of each time, you know, this, this axe went up. So it was really, really insane. Um, All in all, a photographer tried to take pictures of the crime scene, but he was obviously thrown out. Um, let's see in the chat. So Brianna says, or Brianna, sorry, I don't know which one. Let me know. I never understood that because even if I was a police officer in that time, I would never let those people come into a crime scene and just touch everything and ruin all the evidence. I feel like if no one went in or touched anything, they probably could have had proof that who indicated the killer was. Yeah. That's act, that's exactly what a lot of people think is like it's just been compromised to the extent. And, you know, again, these are investigate these are police officers that are just inexperienced and have no clue that they need to cordon off a crime scene. You know, they're dealing with like petty thefts that are pretty easily identifiable because it is a small town. Now, Lauren says, I would totally be scared to take items in case anything was somehow attached to them. But I think now versus then, people are more afraid to take things because of feeling disrespectful or uncomfortable. And back then, they were very open and interested in gruesome stuff for sure. It was less taboo. Yes. Um, and if, again, you're a believer in the paranormal, then of course you believe that these um, anything in the house carries the energy of their last moments and the fear of their last moments if they were awake um, when the attacks were happening. So, yeah, let's it's pretty insane. So the police did manage to conclude a few things. So first is that all eight occupants of the house had been bludgeoned to death, most likely with the ax that had been left in the home or in the room of where the Selinger girls were sleeping in. Now the ax belonged to Joe and he kept it in the coal shed. The ax was bloody, but it looked like someone had attempted to clean it. And it appeared that everyone had been killed in their sleep. Lena was the only one who showed signs that she had awoken. Lena had a wound on her arm that is believed to be a defensive wound and seemed further down the bed than you would be if you were sleeping. It suggested that she woke up and slid down the bed while trying to defend herself against the attack, which could also explain, as I mentioned earlier, the positioning of her nightgown, but not the absence of her undergarments. Now, police concluded that the time of the attack was between midnight and 5 a.m. because they knew the family was home at around 10 p.m. and would have had some evening chores to do before bed. And they knew that the neighbor, Mary, hadn't seen any movement in the house since 5 a.m. So Dr. Cooper was the one of the first people to enter the house. He examined the blood stains and concluded that the family had been killed between 2 and 3 a.m. due to the appearance of the stains and how much they had dried. Now we know. Um, when it comes to that, that we can't, there's no real time frame on blood stains and, you know, that science there um, in terms of like, oh, it's, this blood's been here for 10 hours, et cetera. Um, yeah. So we could go with that at 2, 8, 2 to 3 a.m., you know, if they um, finished their chores, you know, had dinner, et cetera, went to sleep, got ready for bed, you know, and, then were attacked, then that time frame could work. So this is what police police think happened. So they believe that the killer was hiding in the attic space, waiting for the Moore family to arrive home. Um, the attic space is a fairly large space that is accessed from Joe and Sarah's bedroom. 
and it occupies the space above the kitchen. And it's definitely big enough for someone to hide in for a prolonged amount of time. Um, and we tested that out too. Um, I was able to walk in just fine. I could meander around if I wanted to, stretch out, lay down, um, could sit in a corner. You wouldn't be able to see me. So if that's the theory that they're going with, the person was hiding in the attic, it's a completely viable theory. Support for True Crime Fan Club is brought to you by Incipio. Incipio offers legendary protection for all of your devices, from phones to AirPods to tablets. They obsess over their tech to protect yours. As you know, the holiday season is upon us, so Incipio Organic Core Clear and Duo for MagSafe are the perfect holiday gifts if you're gifting somebody a new phone, tablet, or AirPods. Did you know that every 12 Organic Core cases reduces one pound of plastic from landfill waste? That's amazing and a great way to make a difference with a gift for a loved one. Just know your phone will be protected from drops as high as 14 feet. Best of all, all Organic Core Clear cases are also wireless charging compatible. And there's a lifetime warranty, so they've got you covered. So what do you get? You get 20% off and free shipping within the U.S. with code TCFC at Incipio.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code TCFC at Incipio.com. Um, So the assumed timeline of the killings is that the killer attacked Joe and Sarah first before moving to the adjoining bedroom where the more children were sleeping. He then moved downstairs and killed the Stillinger sisters. And it's unknown if he knew that the Stillinger girls were in the house prior to finding them in the downstairs bedroom. Um, Because again, it's it's off to the kitchen. So you have to walk in to the room to be able to see the bedroom, etc. You wouldn't just know somebody was in there and sleeping. So every person was killed with the blunt side of the axe, and each person was hit about 20 to 30 times. So this is considered to be a calculated but frenzied killing. And I think I did read somewhere that Joe may have been struck with the sharp side of the axe first before the killer changed to using the blunt side. So let's see what the chat is saying here. Taking stuff from the house if you're just visiting is disrespectful. Yeah. Oh, and they have people, um, people leave gifts for the children in the form of toys and balls. Um, They've done a ton of different paranormal investigations that they have um, recorded where they picked up um, EVFs or sorry, electric voice phenomenons, EVPs. Um, And then Lauren says, even those people who do urban exploring videos on YouTube and stuff always say not to take anything from any abandoned house or whatever, just in case it's like disrupting disrupting something or has something attached. I totally agree. Uh, Taking stuff is wild. I feel like the spirit would just see you as selfish. Yeah. And they definitely would freaking haunt you. And then you would have a ghost story for the ages. And I don't know that that's necessarily a great ghost story to have. Um, So... There was some evidence that the killer did leave behind. He ensured that all the curtains were drawn in the house and he covered two windows that didn't have curtains with items of clothing that belonged to the Moors. And remember, they're talking about this being in the middle of the night, essentially, and it was already super dark. So you have to wonder why he did this. Was this an illusion to give, you know, that the family was sick or they were sleeping or that they weren't home um, so that in the morning light didn't shine through and nobody would be able to see in. He also covered all the victims with sheets or clothing and covered all the mirrors in the house. And those those things are still there. So all of the mirrors in the house are still covered to this day. They've not been moved or anything like that. And it's freaky to see that. Um, yeah, it's it's so surreal to be there. It's kind of like the like time stood still there, right? Like you see some modernization in there because they have like an AC unit, obviously, because there's no <laughs> central air or heat. Um, but for the most part, the house is still in the relative same condition as it was in 1912. 
um, and seeing everything as he's going through, like essentially the way I'm telling you, this is what he's saying. And you're looking around and you're like, okay, yeah, this is really, this is really creepy and very surreal to be in this place um, where so many people were murdered and lost their lives. So there was also a kerosene lamp at the foot of Joe and Sarah's bed, which did not belong in the house because the chimney was missing from the lamp and the wick was turned back. So the chimney, the chimney was later found under a dresser and a similar lamp was found at the foot of the cylinder's bed. Um, I mentioned earlier, there were gouge marks in the ceilings of the upstairs bedrooms from where the killer had swung the ax. And a couple of those marks are still visible today. It's weird. Let's see. So Morgan says the covering of the bodies makes sense for one of the suspects. I won't spoil anything, but I have long forgotten this case since I learned about it. Yes, it feels free. The mirrors being covered is unreal. The fact that no one has moved anything for years is amazing, even after installing AC and stuff. Oh, yeah. And it's all very like. It's not installed very well. I mean, like I said, there's extension cords running around um, there. So, I mean, they've done their best to help kind of modernize it for the sleepovers with while still maintaining the integrity of the 1912 house. Um, but yeah, you'll see a bunch of little notes there and everything. So the killer also left a piece of keychain on the floor of the parlor bedroom, a bloody pan of water and a plate of uneaten food was found in the kitchen, suggesting that he cleaned up and spent some time in the house after the murders. A two pound slab of bacon was found on the floor of the downstairs bedroom and another slab was found in the ice box suggesting that the bacon had been in the house and the killer moved it to the bedroom floor. Um, there was nothing missing from the house. All the valuables were still there, which means it was not a robbery gone wrong. Now, for those interested on, on the paranormal side, I'm curious to hear your thoughts about the mirrors being covered um, and what you think that means either from, obviously from the killer's perspective, right? Do you think that maybe he had some belief in the afterlife and maybe didn't want the spirits to get trapped. I don't know what, I mean, very curious to hear what you guys think about that. So let's get into suspects. Now there's no shortage of sus. Oh my gosh. Wow. There was no shortage of suspects um, because in a small town, people talk and rumors fly. Now the first suspect that comes to mind is Sam Meyer so Ed Selly, the man who worked for Joe, informed the police of a, disagree a disagreement between Sam and Joe. Now, this information led police to arrest Sam late on the 12th of June. However, he had a solid alibi and was actually 72 miles away in Nehaka, Nebraska, on the night of the murders. Um, so once his alibi was verified and confirmed, he was actually released and then we move on to um, State Senator Frank F. Jones, who was Joe's former employer at the Jones store. So Jones was upset because when Joe left to open his own store, I mentioned earlier, he took the John Deere account with him. Now, this was a huge contract and a really big loss for the Jones store. And there was also a rumor that Joe had had an affair with Jones's daughter-in-law, Donna, but this was never confirmed. So Jones was accused of hiring a man by the name of William Mansfield to kill Joe. However, Jones denied the accusations and was never arrested. Let's see. Demilka, I hope I said that right. Might be some self-hatred. Couldn't look at himself after committing the murders, but him eating after committing the murders is kind of like, I already committed the murders and hate myself, so I might as well enjoy some food. True that. But also leaving two pounds of bacon on the floor is not only rude, but also just wasteful. Um, but yeah, it, it's reminiscent of who did this? The Night Stalker. Oh, no, no, no. Um, the Golden State Killer. So remember, he would um, tie up his victims, put plates on their backs and was like, if you move, I'll kill you. But then he would spend time in the house also, you know, um, eating. And everything and, and cooking himself meals and making himself sandwiches and things like that. So I think it's more of a power grab, too. I mean, his victims were alive while he was doing that. And, you know, for the Moore family, they were already passed after he 
went. But we've seen cases where the killer, especially around, you know, these time frames, um, where the killer did spend time in the house after murdering the family and, you know, fed and watered the animals and, you know, live life as as nothing was going on, but completely hidden. about that. <laughs> so yeah, it, it was, you know, I mean, we've had people who've done that. So it's a little strange. So let's see, Lauren, back in the chat. Don't be sorry. I love it. We're going to open up the discussion in just a few. So I'm saying like a million things. It's fine. Him covering the mirrors is being very self-aware. That is a belief in the paranormal for sure. Thinking the spirits could get trapped or come back to get him. Probably doesn't want to deal with being hated by spirits because he already hates himself and can't take it anymore. Right. And again, remember, this is a very frenzied killing. It was intentional, but also frenzied. So interesting. Okay. So William Mansfield, um, the man who was allegedly hired by Senator Jones to kill Joe, is said to be responsible for other axe murders besides the one that happened in Villisca. So the axe murders of Rollin and Anna Hudson and Paola, Kansas, were committed four days before the Villisca murders. And he's also said to be responsible for the killings of Jenny Peterson and Jenny Miller in Aurora, Colorado. A private investigator said that he could prove that Mansfield was in town at the time of each murder. So the investigator believed all the murders were connected due to a few similarities. First, all the victims were bludgeoned with an axe. B, all the mirrors and windows were covered and there was always a chimney, chimney-less lamp at the floor, I mean, at the foot of the bed. All the crime scenes had a blood of, or had a bowl of bloody water indicating that he had cleaned up before leaving. So this led police to believe that they were dealing with a multiple person killer. They didn't have the term serial killer at the time. So it's kind of what they called them. But yes, they believe they were dealing with a serial killer. Um, and Morgan, I think, just want to make sure. Yeah, Morgan, is this the person you're thinking of? So William was arrested and extradited from Kansas City to Montgomery County, where Villisca is located. He was later released when he produced payroll records, which placed him in Illinois at the time of the Villisca murders. Two years later, William was accused of killing his wife, infant, father-in-law, and mother-in-law in Illinois in July of 1914. So what do you think of William as a viable suspect? As we know now, even then, records could have been doctored. If we look at the Adnan Syed case and Dan, his mom, you know, changed his payroll records. So that was using technology. But it's also been done even in the 1900s where documents were forged and changed to show like, oh, hey, I was here. So how do we feel about William as a viable suspect so far, given his penchant for crime? and killing people like his wife. <laughs> now, the final suspect, one who is very popular in the pool of suspects, his name is Reverend George Kelly, but he actually wasn't a reverend at all. He was more of an intern, according to the author of The Man from the Train. So Reverend Kelly was a traveling preacher who immigrated to America from England in 1904. He had a mental breakdown at a young age and was known for his odd behavior and was also a well-known peeping Tom. So red flag immediately, right? We think about peeping Toms and how they start. Think about Ted Bundy. We're thinking about um, BTK, et cetera. So, and Richard Ramirez, we also have a lot of them, but, um, oh yes. Yeah, so we're talking about the one you think is the suspect. Okay, great. So. At the time of the murders, Reverend Kelly lived in Macedonia, Iowa with his wife, and Macedonia is around 40 miles from Villisca. Now, he had been invited to Villisca to take part in the Children's Day celebrations, and he had left town before the bodies were discovered. Now, while on the train out of Villisca, Reverend Kelly allegedly told other passengers that there were eight dead people in Villisca that had been killed in their sleep but had not been discovered yet. He also seemed very interested in the murders. So days later, he ends up going back to Villisca and he told police he was from, get this, ridiculous. He tells police that he's from the Scotland Yard 
and he's asking to tour the house. And Reverend Kelly sent rambling letters to the police about the murders. In the letters, he says things like he was walking past the house and he could hear the axe thud. Show me in GIFs if you think this dude's already guilty or if he's innocent until proven guilty. So he said that the killer went out on the porch and he said that Sarah reared up in bed after she was bludgeoned. Authorities took these letters seriously and wrote back to Kelly, hoping he would provide more details. But Reverend Kelly was committed to the St. Elizabeth's Hospital, which was at the time the National Psychiatric Hospital in 1914. So he was finally arrested in May of 1917, and he made a confession and signed it on August 31st, 1917. So here is the confession. This is what he said. He said, I arrived in Villisca the Saturday night preceding the murders. Sunday, I preached twice in the country. Sunday evening, I ate supper with the Rev- with Reverend Ewing, pastor of the First Presbyterian Church. Mr. Ewing asked me if I would sleep in the house alone as he and his family were going to sleep in a tent. Mr. Ewing showed me to my room. I went to bed but couldn't sleep. I was working on a sermon, the text of which was Slay Utterly. I had heard Gypsy Smith preach on that topic. I got dressed and went out on the balcony. I heard a sound like a windmill. I went back to bed again but couldn't sleep. Then I got up and dressed for a walk, still studying my sermon. At 2.45 o'clock, I went to the Presbyterian church. While alone in the church, I heard a voice. It said, go further. I went out and I walked to the end of the street where I saw a shadowy witch beckoned. Hold on. Where I saw a shadow which beckoned me to follow. The shadow led me to the rear of the Moore house. I saw an axe on a rubbish heap. I picked up the axe by the handle. The voice again spoke, saying, Go on, follow the shadow, slay utterly. The shadow led me to the door of the Moore home. Inside, the voice said, Go up. I obeyed the voice. I thought I was climbing Jacob's ladder. I went into a room where four little children were sleeping. The voice of God God said, Slay utterly, suffer little children to come unto me. I answered the voice of God and said, Yes, Lord, they're coming now. I took hold of the end of the axe handle and killed the children. I am sure I killed the children first. Children had bothered me all my life. I think I put the sheet over them afterward. The voice of God then said, More work yet. There must be sacrifices of blood. I followed the shadow into a room where Mr. and Mrs. Moore were sleeping. I worked as fast as I could. I think I killed the mother first. I felt tired. I went downstairs and thought I would find a place to lie down. I saw two girls sleeping in a room. God's voice said, more work still. The words slay utterly were still ringing in my ears. I killed them. I think I put the sheet over them, but I don't just remember. The text slay utterly had been in my mind before the murders and has been ringing in my ears ever since. I have had an I have had a hard time resisting the impulse to slay. My soul is relieved now for the first time in five years. Yes, guilty, right? You would think. You're just like, hello, okay, thank you for solving this murder. So now we're going to go into Reverend Kelly's trial. So the first trial was held in September 1917, He was on trial for the murder of Lena Stillinger, presumably because the prosecution felt they had more evidence for that murder. So the prosecution argued that Reverend Kelly's mental state and confession proved his guilt. They also pointed to a bloody shirt that he had sent to be washed the week after the murders and the fact that he was talking about the murders before the bodies had even been discovered. What do you think the jury found? Guilty? Not guilty. Sound off in the comments below because I definitely want to see what you think right now. Now think in the form of true crime, right? What you what you expect. So guilty or not guilty. Okay. Come on, people. So the trial ended in a hung jury. Can you believe that? A hung jury. After all of that, 
Isn't that insane? So, of course, given the U.S. penal system, he is given a retrial because of the hung jury. So you would anticipate that, of course, given the confession and everything, that he's going to be found guilty at his second trial. But the second trial ends in acquittal. So officially, even though we have a confession for the crimes, there is no one being held responsible for the murders of the Moore family and the Sillinger sisters to this day. So yeah, very, isn't that insane? So there's a lot of theories, right, because of this, that the victims didn't get justice, even though there was a confession. And so that led to them and, you know, obviously their lives being taken far too soon that they roam the house and that they are still there haunting it. Okay, so let's see. If you guys want to come up and chat, share your thoughts, feel free to press the request button and you will be brought up to talk to me about it or share your thoughts about how incredibly insane the story is. Um, Don't be shy. Literally, everybody wants to hear you. It's okay. You will be muted when you first join. So just make sure you unmute yourself when you come up. Um, But yeah, I definitely want to hear from anybody who wants to share their thoughts about this crime, their theories. Do you think the crime is solved? And we have the person who was just acquitted. Why do you think he was acquitted? We don't have that answer um, of why he was acquitted. So let's see. So Morgan says, they really said that confession means absolutely nothing. You're free to go. Exactly. So Linda says that maybe he he went to the house and he could have seen the evidence. And that's why he confessed. But why do you think he would have confessed to the crime if he didn't commit it and give all of those details, especially in the time or in saying like, hey, this is the order of events that I did it. So let's see. Linda says he should have been locked up. Yeah. So he wasn't even really a priest, right? He was, or a preacher or whatever. He was like studying to become one. Um, But yeah, we've, we've covered the murders of the Velisca Axe murder house. And now we go into, um, the haunting. So according to the website, they say that there's visits all the time by paranormal investigators and they have provided audio, video, and photographic proof of paranormal activity. The tours have been cut short by children's voices, falling lamps, moving ladders, and flying objects. Psychics have confirmed the presence of spirits dwelling in the home and may have actually communicated with them. And skeptics have left as believers. So what do you think? So let me see if I can find out more about Mr. Kelly. What a really insane thing. Okay, so yes, here's the other thing too. Okay, right? So I'm obviously a believer in the paranormal, but I'm also like reasonable and logical about things, right? So I told you I was taking, I was actually doing a live video stream for my other podcast called It's Haunted What Now. It's a paranormal podcast that I have. Um, so I was doing a live feed of the tour because I wanted people to be able to see it, listeners, etc. And there was a moment in the um in the live stream where you see clearly, like this is not a you know, like dust, like, oh no. You see very clearly something just like shoop, across the screen. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. This is crazy. And when I got to the house, I'm a big believer in like energy and places having energy, right? Like I'm also come from a scientific place of it that everything is consisting of energy. So it just makes sense. It's not like, oh my God, energy, whatever. No, it's like a thing, right? So he, it was... <sighs> When I got there, I was just like super, super nauseous. Like I just was like, 
again, maybe it's because I knew what was, what happened in the house and it was all very real because I was there. And so it could have been just like a mental thing of where I'm just feeling, you know, overwhelmed by the amount of negative energy there because nothing positive happened, right? It wasn't like, oh, yay, after that. It's, it isn't, you know, it wasn't great. So um, I just felt like gross the entire time, like super nauseous. So we go in, we have the tour, I'm walking around and I'm just like, again, feeling overwhelmed, really sad. And I just want to leave. Like, it wasn't something I was looking forward to it at first because I was like, you know, I'm a true crime person, also a paranormal person. So this is like my bread and butter in one visit. And I honestly left. I was so upset. But I mean, I wasn't crying, but I was just like upset about how the visit turned for me. Um, and obviously kind of dealing with the sobering fact of the crime and how it happened. And of course you're faced with the reality of it because you're seeing the marks that have happened um, because of the ax wielding and the ceilings. They have pictures of the family all around the house as they would have when they were living there. So you're seeing the people who were affected by this, who were murdered and their lives taken, especially the little kids. It was just, it was really terrible. Um, so yeah, it was, I think that's a lot, um, Oh, thanks, Blurry. Yeah, so I think that's kind of, you know, it's a it's a weird feeling and it's a weird thing to have to deal with if you um, believe in it. So I'm interested. Do you guys, like, if you're from the paranormal side, how do you feel about that? Like, do you think, you know, that this house is haunted based off of what you know? And then I'm going to see... Oh, yeah. So if you go to um, the VeliscaIowa.com, I put the link in the sh- in the um, chat here. But if you go there, you'll be able to see the house. You'll be able to see the renovations, learn about the history. And then you'll also be able to read um, some of the haunting stories from the guests that were there. So I'm going to read one of them to you so you have them. Um, so this is a summary of a personal experience that was provided by Pat Busson of Waukesha, Wisconsin. So he says, my first visit to the Williska Axe murder house was in June of 2009. It was a simple day tour of the house and the cemetery. But since that very day, I have been hooked. Since that time, I have spent many overnight visits at the house and not one time have I had any regrets. I would never stay at that house overnight. So. As far as paranormal activity goes, the house comes through loud and proud. Over the past few years, I have accumulated many EVPs from this house, both live and residual. I have also called out the names of the Moore children and Lena and Ina Sillinger, who were all victims on that fateful night, to turn my flashlight on and off when they, and when I asked, they did just that. These impressive paranormal incidents occurred in the blue room. Yeah, and that room's still also creepy. Where Lena and Ina were murdered and the upstairs bedroom where the four more children were murdered. I have also felt cold spots in this house that I cannot offer an explanation for, but were there. Based on my personal experiences and EVP captures, along with my own gut feeling, I believe the spirits of all eight victims still dwell within that house. The burning question is why? Is it due to fear and trauma as a result of the incident itself? Or is it because that house is the last place they knew? Or all of the above? or none of the above. A couple of years back, I became a member of a paranormal investigation team called International Ghost Research Society, and we have spent a few overnights at the house, gathering plenty of audio and video evidence to convince even the most hardcore skeptic that the Velisca Axe murder house is most definitely haunted. This house has a mystique all of its own and will rival any other alleged haunted location. An overnight visit to this house will make the most skeptic Uh, most skeptical person, a believer. What happened in the house in June of 1912 was terrible and tragic. It was something that never should have happened. I believe there are many secrets embedded within the town of Villisca concerning the axe murders that may have never been revealed. In closing, I am glad I discovered the Villisca axe murder house as a paranormal investigation hotspot and a place to remember the victims as well. I don't like that. Okay. So what do you guys think about that? Very interesting. Oh, and I think you can also, I would actually like to know if you guys 
would be spending the night at the house if given the chance. And let me tell you. Let's see. So they're actually booking it now because of COVID. Obviously, it wasn't. Um, let's see. No, there are no children. Also, who would bring their kids? They have a no children under seven rule. So you can bring your eight-year-old. Would you? <laughs> I would not bring my kid there either. Um, let's see. Overnights is $428 for groups from one to six people, $75 each additional person, and a $200 non-refundable to be paid back. Um, would you stay? Yeah, especially after hearing about the person who stabbed themselves in the chest. No, thank you. That will not ever be happening. I will not stay there. But yeah, I did the daylight tour and there's no way I would stay overnight whatsoever. Um, they do do night tours, but um, again, I would not. <laughs> I would not do that at all. So let's see what the chat is saying. And then, of course, if anybody wants to come up to be like, that's effing weird, I would never. Um, or even if you want to share your own personal spooky tale, feel free to come up and share a ghost story with us. Um, like, oh, here's another weird thing. So. In preparation for the show, right, I always do a little release on what the topic will be on social media. So on my Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whatever, I'll go and, you know, create something to put out there to get people excited about coming for the show. Um, So I was actually editing some of the live video that I had um, taken for the, for my listeners. And I was editing it in this app. and I got the same feeling that I did before. So I literally had to stop and I was going to release it and be like, like, you can see what I saw and like showing the ax marks and all this stuff so people could see it. Um, and it was insane. I couldn't, I couldn't even finish it. Um, I will say Velisca is nothing great. (laughs) So if you go there, prepare to like not have a good place to eat or anything like that. So eat before you go and everything like that. It, if you do go, I, I would recommend going to the day tour because it's really interesting. Um, you know, you're seeing this, this, you know, everything that's happened there. So I don't know. I would go to the tour for sure. I don't think I actually, I know I would not, um, be sleeping there. So, um, So they also have some rules for overnight. So you can't write in or on the barn. You can't write in or in the, in or on the house. Um, all the trash obviously has to be put in bags, cigarette butts disposed of. You can't smoke in the house. You can't sleep in the beds. You can't use flames or candles or anything like that. And you can't do a lot of stuff. Like there's no electricity. Remember that. Okay. <sighs> no justice to be used for tourism. Oh, I'm sure. Yes, I will stick to podcast too. Well, you guys, thank you so much for joining me, obviously, for having a lively discussion in the chat. That's what I love to see. We love to see it. Um, if you are interested in further True Crime Convo shows and you haven't yet followed me on Spotify Greenroom, all you have to do is click the link and you'll see or click my little profile picture. You'll find out where to follow me and all that fun stuff. Now, I will also be getting on tomorrow. I haven't picked a time yet, but I will be getting on tomorrow to talk about the break in the John Wayne case date. Oh my God. John Wayne Casey case where another victim was identified who was previously unidentified before. Um, So that's great news. I'll give you a little background on Gacy as well, but don't forget this is our true crime night. So you are going to have so many good things to look forward to tonight. We have the, um, True Crime Rerun Girls, they're going to be talking about, uh, I don't know what they're talking about. I don't think they have it listed, so never mind. Um, But Crime Movie Club is going to be talking about that new cult documentary that came out where they're like on HBO Max. I'm really interested to hear about that. Um, So I'll probably show up tomorrow. Let's shoot for maybe around the same time, 6 p.m. Central, to talk about the John Wayne case, JC, oh my God, John Wayne Gacy case. Um, and the Doe Project, the DNA Doe Project, which has broken so many cases, thankfully, and given people their identities back, which is amazing. So 
Thank you guys for joining. Don't forget to stay tuned. Don't forget to stay on all the way through for the rest of the true crime content that you're going to be getting. And again, feel free to follow me and I will see you next tomorrow, actually. Um, and if you have a topic for True Crime Convos, feel free to tweet me or message me however you want to. All right, everyone. Thanks for joining me. Have a great rest of the evening and uh, don't get haunted or go anywhere haunted, please. And if you do, send me an email about your experience. <laughs> All right. Oh, and um, happy Halloween if we don't talk until next week. Bye. Okay, fan club members. As I conclude this episode, my one question to you is, how will you sleep tonight? Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a positive review and rating on Apple Podcast or your podcast player of choice. It really does help. You can find us on most social media channels, Twitter at TCFCPod, Facebook.com slash TCFCPodcast, Instagram at True Crime Fan Club Pod, but let's not forget I'm still locked out. And of course, our website is TrueCrimeFanClub.com. If you have an episode request, send us an email tcfcpod at gmail.com.